Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your Sabbath, and we thank you for bringing us to this place at this time. Father, you know very well that I have no words of life to share with my brothers and sisters here, for those words come straight from you. And so I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you transform this sermon into whatever we need to hear, that you would take any distractions, good or bad, and help us to hear from you in a practical way, that we would leave this time more in love with you and more deeply convinced of your everlasting love for us. Give us clarity, Lord, and may we see the truth with perfect clarity. We ask these things knowing that you delight to answer because we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I was 17 and a half, because I'm a precise person, I became a Christian. I was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home by wonderful parents, but up until that point, I was good because I didn't like to be punished. My dad knew how to punish me, <laughs> and he knew what grounding was. So I was like, you know, I don't want to have that happen, so I'll just be good. But I was 17 and a half. I had a wonderful encounter with Christ, and I decided, I remember actually, it was, it was you know, it was, I was more of those, like a gradual kind of a gradient conversion. It wasn't quite a moment, but I remember my final decision was, Jesus, I have no idea what I'm doing, but you can have all of me, and you can take me wherever you want. Just please be with me, because it's scary out there. So please walk with me. And as I came into the church in a more official sense, I, you know, was immediately, immediately encountered this idea of evangelism, right? So sharing the gospel, sharing the truth of God with other people. But as I spent more time, I kind of noticed there was these two different sides of evangelism. Now, this can be true in many different senses, but there's one sense in my case, and there was a pendulum, as it were. And I think that you and I, all of us, please don't take this, don't, no offense, right, no offense. But I think all of us naturally swing one way or another in this pendulum. The first side is overly passive Christianity. And to the extreme is, I'm a Christian, but you don't need to know that. Or I'm a Christian and I will share Jesus with you, but like in the really subtle, you never know it's me way. On the other side of this pendulum is overly aggressive Christianity. This is where I'd put megaphones on campuses. Um, or where I'd put, hello, you have no idea who I am, but these are my judgments about you right now. Both not so good. Now, as you might be able to tell already, I personally, my struggle is the overly passive Christianity. Um, I don't like to be offensive. I'm a millennial, so that's kind of like built into my DNA. We don't offend people. Um, and that's just where I naturally swing. So when I need to tell someone something, I really don't want to. So the idea of overly aggressive Christianity, I'm like, they need to be converted. That's, that's their problem. But honestly, it's a problem on both sides because we need to love people enough to be truthful with them. Amen? So both of them have problems. But you know what's fascinating about these problems is both sides can use scripture to defend themselves. Let me show you what that looks like. I've heard things like Jesus always was direct. I mean, he called people whitewashed sepulchers, uh, pretty tombs with full of dead men's bones. Little direct, kind of insulting. I wouldn't do that. But Jesus did that, and he's Jesus, so you know he was right. But then other people will say, well, Jesus was always indirect. He never blasted Judas outright. Not once. The closest he came to it was whoever dips his bread with me is the one who would betray me. Then he did it. No one is paying attention because disciples are always distracted. And then he said to, to Judas, what you do, do quickly. 
That was still very indirect, though. He didn't say, you're going to betray me, Judas. It still wasn't direct. So I would say, yeah, see, Jesus was always indirect. I love that about Jesus, but he was also direct. Other people will say, Jesus always prioritized ministry over family. I mean, when his mother and brothers came to visit and someone told him, he said, who are my mother and brothers? These are my mother and brothers, those who do the will of God. So clearly, ministry, family, very obvious. But then also when he was on the cross, he very much prioritized his family. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Okay, now it's getting confusing. Okay, well, he did also, he always nipped disrespect and right in the bud, always. I mean, people were exchanging money in the tabernacle. He flipped tables. He had a whip and stuff. Very intense. Very scary Jesus. So clearly, when he sees disrespect, he's like, no. But then there was that one time in John 8 that the Jewish leaders said that he was an illegitimate child. Very rude. Very disrespectful. And he didn't even respond. Okay, well, it's getting weird now. See, the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't even walk the line of balance. He seems to go back and forth all the time. So how are we supposed to follow someone who doesn't follow a pattern? That's kind of hard. We're supposed to be like Jesus, but are we supposed to be erratic in our behavior? The answer is no. That's not the answer. So whichever one of these sides that you swing to, I want you to self-diagnose. We're not, all, we're not all doctors here. Some of you are, but not everyone is. But I want you to do your best to be like, okay, what do I naturally go to? We all want to be centered. Amen. We always want to be like Jesus. Amen. But one of us, we, we, we all struggle with one of these sides. So self-diagnose for a second. And which one is your go-to? Are you more like, I'll tell you the truth as long as I don't offend you? Or are you more like, I'll tell you the truth, full strength and no adaptation? What is your natural inclination? Think about it. And then I want to be able to answer, how was Jesus always perfectly balanced? I'm sure there's a thousand principles, but I'm not going to do that to you this morning. You're welcome. I'm just going to share four that I think if we follow these four biblical principles, if we can live our lives like this, we can live the kind of balance that Jesus did. Is that fair? Yes? Amen. Four people are with me. All right. Four people come with me. So the first principle is help people understand the truth, not just hear it. Help people understand the truth and not just hear it. There are 33 unique parables recorded in the four Gospels. Unique meaning, I'm not counting the ones that are said over and over again. Like if said once, that counts as one. 33. That number can go up to 60 if you want to include phrases and conversations Jesus had, like when he was talking to Nicodemus and he equated the Holy Spirit to the wind going here and there. That's not a parable, but like it is a parable, so we're going to say it is. So 33 to 60 parables, depending on how you count. Scholars say that it it counts for one-third of all of Jesus' teachings. Now, why did Jesus spend one-third of his time on earth telling stories about very kind of sometimes boring things? Why? Because he wanted people to understand. He wanted people to understand and not just hear. And the crazy thing is, Jesus would have had every right in the world to come down here to earth and speak to us about the kingdom of heaven and just the language of kingdom of heaven. And he would have done what he had the perfect right to do. Here's the truth. I don't get it. Well, I told you. Good. Have fun. Like he, he had the perfect right to do that. He's Jesus. He can do that. 
But Jesus' focus wasn't on just doing the bare minimum. Jesus wanted us to be saved and to live lives after his pattern. So he, he comes to his disciples, he comes to people listening to him, and he says, okay, the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, so it's like a, it's like a guy who finds a buried treasure. And because of the joy of the buried treasure, he sells everything else just for that treasure. Do you get it? No. Okay. Um, if, if you listen to me and, and do what I say, it's like, it's like if you built your house upon the rock. And the storms of life would come, but it, it stays put because it's on the rock. But if you listen to what I say and, and you don't do it, it's like building your house on, on the sand. And it washes away at the slightest storm. Jesus could have just said, do what I say. Or don't, but bad things will happen, I guess. <laughs> that doesn't stick in the mind as much, right? As um, I spent the last seven years being a teacher, and one of my favorite things about being a teacher is every single person is a puzzle. I love semicolons. If you want to talk about that after, please come talk to me. I love semicolons. But there are so many different ways to teach how semicolons work. <laughs> I can teach it to one student, and like, I get it. And I see it to the other student, and they're like, that makes no sense. Like, I just... Okay, new sentence. <laughs> But that's how Jesus is with us. Like, how can I talk to you about salvation? That's why there's so many parables that talk about the same thing. Because all of us are different. All of us relate to Jesus in different ways. And because Jesus wants us to understand and not just hear the truth. So my overly aggressive brothers and sisters, I encourage you to take the time to adapt to your audience. I encourage all of us to take the time to think not just how do I tell you because I'm supposed to tell you because it's my responsibility to tell you and here you go, but more of, okay, how can I say this in such a way that doesn't compromise truth but still adapts perfectly to this person so they can understand the truth and not just hear it? If that makes sense, please say amen. amen. Second point. Love others more than their opinion of you. Love others more than their opinion of you. Can you tell which side of the pendulum I'm speaking to right now? <laughs> My overly passive brothers and sisters. Love others more than their opinion of you. Go with me in your Bibles, please, whether it is like this or a phone. I'll, you're still welcome here. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 16. Verse 16 says, And behold, a man came up to him, him meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away 
sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I love this story because I can't imagine myself doing that as Jesus. I can't imagine myself knowing someone is asking the right question. He asks, how, how can I enter to your life? Like, what do I need to do? Give me a list. I'll do it. Anything. And then Jesus, why did Jesus have to go there? Like, why do you have to bring that up? <laughs> he already did so many great things. Jesus is just being offensive again. Uh, Jesus. But he says to go and sell everything that you have and then follow me. But why did he say that? I mean, that's not part of the 28 fundamental beliefs. We don't have to go and sell what we possess. We don't, right? We don't. No, okay, we don't. We don't have to go and sell everything that we possess to be a Christian. We don't. That's not part of salvation. Like, Jesus is bringing up non-salvific issues right now. Why is Jesus doing that? So rude. But why? Because that's what he needed to hear. Because it revealed a condition of his heart. And maybe you and I are willing to go and sell all that we have and follow God. Maybe there's something else that we clutch to our hearts. We say, Jesus, you can have everything else, just not this one thing, please. But that's what the young man needed to hear. And Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him. And he told him such an uncomfortable truth. And it was so uncomfortable that the rich young ruler walked away. When I was a canvasser, I learned a lot of beautiful, good things, but there was one thing I was told that I disagree with. And that is that if Jesus was a canvasser, no one would ever close the door in Jesus' face. I have biblical evidence to defer. I think he would. I think people would close their, their, the door in Jesus' face because Jesus says things that we don't like to hear sometimes, and not everyone is open. And so sometimes we see people and we're like, this isn't going to go well, so I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> but my overly passive brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to see the difficult things because they need to be heard. Let me give you two examples from my own life. I used to work for a mission organization, and I worked with one of my dearest friends named Sebo. Sebo, I hope you're listening to this someday. <laughs> And we got on a call once, and I can't remember what it was. He did something to annoy me. Probably wasn't a big deal. I'm an easily annoyable person. And so he did something to annoy me, and we got on a call with four other people. And I basically took just, like, like side jabs at him in this conference call with four other people the whole time. And I'm one of those people that can do it and make you think you're crazy. <laughs> but really, I'm the mean one who needs repentance. And I didn't talk to him about what he had done that would annoyed me. I just did those side jabs because I'm immature and need Jesus. And so we got off the call, and I knew what I did was wrong, but I'm not going to apologize. Ugh, I'm not going to do that. So I got off the call, and we were going to talk later, and, but he texted me and said, hey, can we talk right now? I said, sure, of course. I'm open. So he called me, and he basically said, Callie, you owe me an apology. No, I don't. <laughs> you owe me an apology for being annoying. <laughs> hey, Callie, you were very unprofessional in that meeting. And if you have a problem with me, you need to follow Matthew 18 and talk to me. And you need to be more mature than that. I love you, and I want you to grow in this way. But I did not appreciate the way that you treated me. <sighs> My soul. <laughs> What are you supposed to say to that? No, you are. Like, there's, there's nothing, there's no way I can have my pride recover from that. But he was right. And I praise God that I said, you're right. 
and I'm sorry. And you know what's crazy? He never treated, he never was like passive aggressive towards me. He was just nice. Huh, I love people like that. <laughs> Forgive you, it's amazing. And but that's what I needed to hear. But you know, sometimes the people are like, well, Callie's clearly in a bad mood. We should just let her be. <laughs> but that's not what I needed. What I needed was my brother to speak to me straight and say what someone else might have been scared to say. Lest you think I only receive it, I also give it sometimes. <laughs> About a week ago, I was at a meal with one of my very closest friends, whom I love, and I have his permission to tell the story. <laughs> and um, we were talking about um, his life and his journey, and he made a comment about being single. And I have been praying for him and about him for a while, and I had a conviction to say something that terrified me to say. And I was like, Jesus, if you, if you end this friendship right now, it's your own fault. And so he... <laughs> So he asked me a question, and the answer was, I said, you know, brother of mine, there are people that I would love to introduce you to, but although I don't know your heart externally, the young ladies that I know, God is a much higher priority to, to them than he is to you. And I would not introduce you to such young ladies. And he said, you know, Callie, <laughs> if you would have said that to me a year ago, I never would have talked to you again. <laughs> but I needed to hear that. And thank you for being honest with me. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> but that's terrifying to say something like that. I mean, you think it, you might even tell your friends about that friend, but you don't like tell that person that because you have feelings. But honestly, the most loving thing you can do in many of those cases is to say it to that person. We need to love other people more than we love being liked, more than we love being called when they're in trouble, more than we love being their favorite person in the whole world. Now, granted, it doesn't mean go home and tell everyone things you don't like about them. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but when Jesus convicts you to say something, don't be like, well, Jesus, that's mean. <laughs> Sometimes we need to say things like, you know, God isn't a high enough priority to you right now. Or, you know, you're being very unprofessional, unchristlike in that conversation. And that hurts. But sometimes we need to hear that. And sometimes we need to say it. If that makes sense, please say amen. amen. My third point, and it's my favorite point, I'm very excited about this point, is if you're in a burning building but don't believe in fire, how do I help you? I love this point. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if you have heard this analogy before, but people talk about the fervor we need for evangelism is equivalent to someone in a burning house, kind of at this stage of burning, basically very, very bad, and we need to yank them out, out of there. That's the kind of urgency we need for the gospel. And I completely agree, but with this phrase inserted. If you're in a burning building, but you don't believe in fire, how do I help you? Use my friend Michelle here as my example. Hi, Michelle. How's it going? Good, okay. So, <laughs> so if Michelle is in a burning building, not at this, quite at this stage, let's say she lives in a three-bedroom apartment and a fire has started in one of the rooms. So Michelle's in the living room. She doesn't like feel it or hear it or see it or smell it, but she, I know it's there because I'm her friend and I'm a firefighter apparently. And so she's there and I want to tell Michelle that if she stays there, she's going to die, right? I'm a good friend. I love Michelle. The thing is though, if I run in and say, Michelle! The house is burning, you're going to die. But she doesn't believe in fire. 
how am I going to look to her? Is she going to listen to me? Mm, probably not. Callie, you and your fire things, very adorable. I'm going to go back to my book. It doesn't really help anything because she doesn't, well, I can drag her out, forcing people. She might just be like, okay, please let go of my person. I'm going to go back into my apartment. <laughs> that could happen. So how do I, I can knock her out. No, that's not good. Hmm. How do I get her out of her apartment and away from the fire? Well, first, she needs to know what fire is. She needs to come to understand what fire, what burning is, what this building falling down on her means. She needs to know that. Sometimes, and what I love about this, this point, though, is it's on both sides. Because overly aggressive sometimes is just like, well, I'm telling you the truth. You're, the house is on fire. You're going to die. I don't believe you. Okay, well, I tried. Good luck. That's, that's not, that's that. But the other side is, well, I don't want to like offend them about fire. So I come in and sit next to Michelle. I'm like, hey, how are things? It's good. I like your shoes. Um, nice apartment you have here. Shame something like happened to it. Um, I think that's, okay, God bless. All right, bye. <laughs> okay, both of those are wrong, all right? One of them we might tend towards the other, but this is the balance. The balance is, I need to go to Michelle and say, Michelle, there's this thing called fire. Okay, weird word. And I explained to her how fire is formed. I explained to her how fire destroys where it is. And I explained to her how if she stays where she is, she will be consumed by fire. And I love her and I want to take her somewhere else. That's the adaptation side. I see this much how um, many of us who have grown up in the Adventist circle we have a lot of Adventist jargon. You need to be justified by faith. I understand the you and the need and the that's it. Okay, what is justified? Or is it 1800s? Like, we don't use that word. And faith, we believe in something? Okay, why? Thank you for your conversation. Goodbye. That's very weird. Or we say, well, this person needs to surrender their burdens to Jesus. He uses the word burdens. It's a very weird word. Again, very archaic. So how do we, but this is how we appeal to people. You need to surrender your burdens to Jesus. Good to see you too, Karen. Okay. <laughs> like this is, wait, there's no conversation. There's no adaptation. There's, you're not telling me what fire is. But at the same time, we don't want to take the friendship evangelism to such an extent that we forget they are in a burning building. There is an urgency there. There is a responsibility. There is a real danger. So when you see someone whether it's your family member or your coworker or your friend or just someone you just love for whatever reason, think of it as you want to help them. You don't want to yank them out somewhere they're just going to go right back to. If you just yank them, they're, they're not, you're actually helping them. But you also don't want to freak them out. <laughs> but it goes back to the first point of helping people understand the truth and not just hearing it. So go with the fervor and the dedication and the life-saving focus of a firefighter but go also as appealing to a friend who may not know that they're in a burning building and need to adapt to their context so they will come with you and see it clearly. So one last side point is go with them. Don't just toss them out and find someone else to save. Go with them out into safety and help them get used to safety as well. If that somehow made sense, please say amen. amen. <laughs> the last point is this. So everywhere and trust God with the results. Go with me to Matthew 13, please. Matthew 13. It starts out with, any guesses? 
The parable of the sower. Very good, you Bible students, you. Okay. The parable of the sower. And as much as I'd love to read the whole thing, to read certain parts. So start in verse 3 of chapter 13. And this is when Jesus just tells the parable. He explains it later. So we're just going into how he says it first. Verse 3, it says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, as much as I'd love to talk about soil right now, I actually just want to talk about the very beginning of that parable. And that is just the sower went out to sow. Now, because the seed fell on uh, things other than good soil, we know that he put it on things other than good soil. That makes sense, right? He didn't say, oh, good soil, here. I will now look for more good soil. (laughs) Everywhere he was going, seeds, seeds, (laughs) seeds, 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 seeds. And what happened to that was dependent on the soil. But the sower wasn't looking. He's just like, I'm just going to sow everywhere. What happens, happens. It's great. Make sense? Yes? Three people? Amen. So he's going, and, but sometimes you and I are more picky of sowers. We evaluate someone, do you look like good soil? Uh, no, okay. We're going to sow over here instead. This person looks ready for the gospel. You, clearly, no. Okay, maybe you. And we evaluate the soil, and then we decide whether or not we're going to sow there. The interesting thing is, is our ability to perceive someone being good soil or not is uh, wrong, (laughs) just in general. It's very, very flawed. It's kind of like a parable later in this chapter, which I highly encourage you to read, of the the wheat and the tares, of them growing up together and people like, how do we, we should just take out the tares now. You won't actually know what tares are yet, so you need to wait. And sometimes we're like, you're going to grow to be a tare. You're going to be a wheat. I will invest here. But we don't we don't actually know because, to be honest, we kind of all looked like bad soil at one point. Amen. <laughs> but someone, through the Lord Jesus, amen, sowed into our lives. And you look back like, man, it looked like really bad soil. <laughs> I am so glad <laughs> that someone took the chance <laughs> and sowed into my life. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was at a missionary college, and uh, we gave Bible studies to people. And time is limited, obviously. So sometimes people would want us to give them Bible studies, and we didn't have time to give everyone Bible studies, which, for the record, is a fantastic problem, but still a problem because we only have 24 hours in a day. And I was thinking about these two different friends that I had, and one of them, I was convinced she was very bad soil. <laughs> Her name is Marina, and she's fine with me telling the story. Um, so when I met Marina, she was a lukewarm Christian of a different denomination. And I remember our first meaningful conversation was, yeah, and I don't think like there really is a truth. Definitely bad soil. That is going nowhere real fast. So clearly I need to go with someone else who like at least believes in truth. I need a starting place. That's confusing. But I, when I prayed, the Lord's just like, you need to spend time with Marina. Like, okay. But she doesn't believe in truth. What am I supposed to do with that? I'm going to open the Bible. She'll be like, why do you believe the Bible? And then I'll explain it. And then she'll think it's weird. 
<laughs> this is too hard. But I did. I spent time with her, gave Bible studies to her, and long story short, as I'm sure you knew where I was going, she is a baptized and very, very active member of the Seventh Adventist Church, and she ministers to me to this day. But she was bad soil. Like, she didn't believe in truth. You and I can't see things clearly. Our call is to sow everywhere and trust God with the results. Don't choose the good soil. One more example, because another part of sowing everywhere is sowing everywhere. Profound, I know. So, let me give you an example. A little while ago, I lost my debit card for the fourth or fifth time, pray for me, and I called my bank to, get it, to cancel that card and get a new one. And so on that phone call, um, the agent was like, well, you know, you've been talking to us a lot lately, which is a very nice way to blast me. Um, and so we need to set up a phone password for you. So do you have a phone password? I'm like, I do. Also, this is no longer my phone password, so don't try to bank, break into my bank anyone. So I said, um, she's like, well, just choose something you would know. I'm like, okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. She's like, oh, very specific. Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just, a, just verses I like. She's like, okay, well, what do they say? Oh, well, <laughs> I don't actually memorized, but <laughs> they talk about <laughs> um, when Paul is pleading with God to remove a weakness of his, and God responds that his strength is sufficient for his weaknesses, and then Paul's talking about how he'd rather boast in his weakness because he's in God's strength, and yeah, it's a cool verse. Check out. Like, oh, what are you, interesting. Oh, anyway, okay, oh, sorry, let, let's go back to you. Let's go back to your credentials. So we go back. We talk about that for about 10 more minutes, and she resolves all my issues, which is very good. Thank you random person on the phone. And at the end of it, she's like, yeah, so anything else I can help you with? No, I'm good. Thanks so much. She's like, okay. Um, question for me though. So I actually already closed out of your account, but could you remind me what those Bible verses were? Like, sure. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. She's like, okay. I, um, I just wanted to read them later. Anyways, you have a great day. Thank you so much for your service and have a great, great rest of your day. You too. That was it. Sometimes, you and I forget that all humans are human. Um, we forget that cashiers are human. We forget that flight attendants are human. We forget that waiters and waitresses are human. And I, I, I say those instances in particular because especially in those times, we're the customer, they're the servant. So you need to do it. We're very self-centric. I mean, we'll like minister to people like evangelistic series. We're not bad people. But when we're just walking by people anywhere, all of them Jesus died for, just as much as he died for you and I. And so we would do well to sow everywhere. Be kind always. Have a Bible verse ready always. Have, be ready for a conversation always. And don't be sad if at the end of it they're not weeping and asking for baptism, okay? We're not always called to see them. Sometimes it's like, oh, we had a good conversation, but they didn't ask me about Jesus. Like, you can just be nice. <laughs> you can just be nice and bring joy and light to people's lives. And just because we don't see the harvest doesn't mean we were not part of the sowing. We can be a part and come to heaven and someone's like, you were a part of my conversion story. And you're like, your name? Like, who are you? But God can use us in ways that we don't have to even notice. We just need to be in a posture of faith and a posture of, Lord, I will sow anywhere. One last example Go with me to John chapter 4, please. John chapter 4. This is my favorite story in the whole entire Bible. It's the woman at the well. 
Jesus is just such a great person. <laughs> so great. John chapter 4. I want to show you how Jesus did all these four principles, lest you think I'm just making them up and I'm crazy. So I'm going to give you biblical evidence so you can have that. So just a quick recap of the story of the one with the well. Jesus is on his way through Samaria. He stops at a well. His disciples go to get food. The Samaritan woman comes and he engages with her through a series of conversations that range a lot in topic, actually. And she ends up um, believing who he is as the Messiah, goes and brings people. It's a great time. The disciples are like, why are you talking to her? Okay, sorry, I went too far. Good story. Okay, so John chapter 4. The first principle, right, was to help people understand and not just hear. Go with me to verse 9. No, just kidding. Verse 7. I tricked you. Haha. Verse 7. <laughs> a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Pause. If Jesus would have offered help, that would have been offensive. But the fact that he asked, like he put himself at the mercy of a Samaritan, that is unheard of, which is why she's like, why? She's, she's even bypassing the courtesy of just giving the man some water. She's like, why are you asking me that? It's very strange. That is how crazy it is that Jesus is even talking to her this way. And Jesus uses this, exam, this, this um, encounter for spiritual truth. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Skip down to verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is like the best teacher ever because he sees someone and he wants to share the gospel with them. He's like, closest thing, water. All right. <laughs> and he already has a story. That is, but it's exactly what she's doing. So Jesus sees her. He sees what she's doing. She comes to this well all the time because she's thirsty and because she needs water. So he sees that need. He's like, okay, how can I help you understand this? I'll use the very thing that you're experiencing at this moment. Because Jesus wants us to understand and not just to hear. Second one is love others more than their opinion of you. Let's pick it up in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Why did he have to go there? She just wanted some water. Calm down. <laughs> but Jesus is appealing to her heart's need. There is something more going on here than just a physical thirst. And Jesus is willing to go and say the thing <laughs> that they might be thinking about and dancing around. And she responds, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
And this is the second part, burning building, but don't believe in fire. So notice what she asks about worshiping and the place of worship and what's, what's actually right. And he says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the, the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus takes the time to explain worship at this well. I don't want to just say, stop doing it. Because he says, you worship what you do not know. You could have just stopped there. You're doing it wrong. Figure it out. Goodbye. No, he, he comes to her and says, this isn't correct. This is what is correct. And this is how you can have a meaningful worship experience with the Father. And then the last part of sowing everywhere. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She was one of the very few that got a direct revelation that Jesus said, yes, Messiah, me, hello. <laughs> very, very few people got that. But this Samaritan woman, who, by the way, very scandalous love life, right, uh, by herself in did I mention she's a Samaritan? She is the worst soil ever. She, why would Jesus sowed everywhere? Jesus sowed in the night with a Jewish leader, Nicodemus, was scared to talk to him. Jesus sowed with fishermen who could not get their whole I'm better than you complex straight. Jesus sowed with Samaritans at, in the middle of the day. Jesus sowed everywhere. Jesus never saw someone that was unworthy of his time or his affection or his reaching hand towards them. So then, whether you are naturally an overly passive or naturally an overly aggressive Christian, I hope that Jesus has spoken to you this morning in just a way that we can be a little bit more balanced as he is. I hope and pray that evangelism is not as scary of a word for you as it was for me for so many years. Evangelism can be scary. It's a responsibility, right? We have to like save people. <sighs> so scary. But it's really just living the life that God has called us to live and sharing in the ways that he's given us opportunities to share. Don't let the devil make it a curse word. Don't let the devil make it a word that evokes fear from your heart. But may evangelism just be a descriptor word of the life that we live as Christians. And may we be balanced, balanced Christians, just as Jesus always has been. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that even though sometimes things look contradictory in the scripture, we can see that Jesus was a perfect example of who we are to be. I don't know the struggles, my brothers and sisters. I don't know how the word evangelism may feel to them. But Father, I pray that if there's any fear that you would completely override it with your peace and with your truth and with your clarity. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love others, that you would help us to love others more than there are opinions of us, that you would help us to go into burning buildings and save those around us, that you'd help us to sow everywhere, <coughs> and that you would help us 
to see truth as it truly is. Father, take our burdens from us. May we trust them in your hands. And may we trust that you can take care of everyone just as well as you can take care of us. We love you and we leave these things at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.